When the Creed speaks of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, it has in view the fact that we and all things depend on God as our creator for our existence, and God sustains every moment. Psalm 104 speaks of God's creation and ongoing creation activity that holds it all together and sustains it with his almighty power. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson, who will discuss God as the true creator of all, the one who has made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Kirk, how are you this morning? Well, I'm recovering from a very busy week. Yes, it's been a busy time in our church life. Just when you think things are going to settle down, all of a sudden we have a bunch of memorials and... Easter and Holy Week and all sorts of things well, we've been through. It's just You kind of expect things to settle down after Holy Week and it just doesn't. So. That's right. That's <laughs> right. It's like having a kindergartner. You think they're all going to be calm one day and chaos happens. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, we uh, had a good week of... Uh, worship and prayer and study on the Apostles' Creed. Yes, our second week on the Apostles' Creed, and uh, Pastor Steve was preaching at our North Campus Mountain View Presbyterian Church, Clint Levitt at our Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, and Kirk, you are uh, down south at South Scottsdale Presbyterian Church preaching on the same text, Psalm 104, and that phrase, uh, we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Yeah, big, big topic, a big, uh, a big text. You could have gone on for two hours. The, the congregation may be a little upset after two hours, but you could have gone on. There's enough material there. Well, and I think maybe that was the problem. It was too much. Yeah. And, uh, so how did you approach it? Well, uh, you know, it, I wanted to exegete 104. Right. But that's such a large text. Right, a lot of verses, 35 verses, I think. And, yeah. and then you have this large idea of God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. You know, God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And such a large topic. So really it, was, it, was a difficult, it was a difficult task for me. But, you know, as we say, the word went out right. and did not return void. So that's the promise anyway. Well, Pastor Steve talked uh, at the start of his sermon about uh, God being our Father. Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about, you know, not every person has a father that's been a good example in his or her life, but uh, we think of uh, God as the ideal father. Talked a little bit about that, and then got into God as creator and God as sustainer, uh, which always makes me think of that passage from Colossians chapter 1, where it says in verse 17, uh, for in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. That's verses 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. And that holding together, that concept and Colossians of Christ holding everything together, mm -hmm. and more broadly of, of God, the Trinitarian God holding all things together, is that sustaining nature of God. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I did talk a little bit about God sustaining and his continuing to create. 
I, I read earlier uh, last week that, I don't know if you know this, but Mount Everest hmm. is five and a half miles high, I think. Is that right? And it's still ascending. It's still growing it's still geologically. Growing. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of an illustration for me as God's continuing to create, continuing to sustain, and still, you know, holding this all together in right. providence. You know, I, I, like Pastor Steve, talked about this idea of father right. and how we might struggle with that because mm-hmm. I'm happy to say that I had a wonderful father and a very good relationship with him, and uh, I have fond memories. But that's not everyone's situation. They may have had a father who was uh, difficult. Right. And uh, their relationship, you know, that word father might for them um, stir and provoke, you know, an astonishing ranges of feelings for the people who are listening to the sermon. And so I talked about it, you know, I kind of just said, hey, um, I know that hearing that word father might evoke sadness or anger or deep pain. But I remember when we were studying in the first week, uh, Clint mentioned that the father is the ideal for all fatherhood. Right. You know, and so we look to that, his loving care and uh, steadfast love for us as kind of the nadir or the, you know, the, the ideal for all fatherhood. It's like being in a restaurant and you're ordering breakfast and you order you know, whatever you're ordering for breakfast, you know, bacon and eggs or oatmeal, and you have an idea of what that will be like, and it comes before you, it's presented to you, and all of a sudden, it's not cooked exactly right. So you have the ideal of what you want in that bowl of oatmeal or that bacon and eggs, and and what's before you isn't like that. But the ideal, what you have in mind when you think of a a good breakfast is still there. Exactly. Yeah. So it was, uh, I think it was challenging for me because... I'm so used to having a text to really preach out of choosing a pericope and then letting the sermon come out of the text. But it was this struggle that I had with, while the Psalm 104 was largely about creation, there was some sustaining there. I mean, all of the themes, um, maybe not fatherhood, but all of the other themes were there in that text. Right, and uh, for our listeners, pericope it means a passage of Scripture uh, defined by a start and a finish. So it's a technical word. Uh, I don't know if that's eight letters or less. Eight letters or yet less, you can use it in Scrabble, so worth memorizing. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I sometimes slip into yeah, this. We, um, we did that last week, too. Yeah, we have a lot uh, of big, big words. words. Yeah. I also was told that I shouldn't use big words in my sermon, like, Apostolic, because people don't know what that means. All right. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we'll have a word of the week as part of the podcast. <laughs> so pericope is our word of the week. Yeah. But uh, I think um, I also, you know, I heard Pastor Steve's because I was in the back running the sound for the stream. Right. Thank and, you for doing that, by the way. Well, <laughs> um, it was a busy Sunday for me. Um, and then I thought his... And he said he didn't have this plan, but when he talked about God being so big that that ought to be our call to worship, 
you know, when we when we have our children, how big is Lily? We, you know, we all do that, right? How big is Lily? So, so big, big, right? right. And uh, I, I thought that was so great that I used that on the South Campus to say, you know, this topic of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is so big. And, and hopefully um, we can make, well, you know, we've, we've always looked at the podcast as being sort of a supplement to the sermon because you can't say in a sermon in 20 minutes everything that, especially this text and this topic, you can't say it all in 20 minutes. You just can't. No, you can't. So uh, we're going to kind of pick and choose some verses that may be helpful to us. And right before we do that, I want to mention in the Eco-Confessional Standards, they have an introduction to the Apostles' Creed. And in that, I found it interesting that they put the emphasis on that, even even though we call God uh, the Father, the Creator, all of the members of the Trinity, all the persons of the Trinity are involved in creation. And so in the summary and highlights uh, part of their introduction to the Apostles' Creed, our eco-confessional standards uh, says that the Apostles' Creed, as we already know, is Trinitarian in outline. The Creed asserts the divinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom the Christian places trust and belief. Some traditions break down the Creed into 12 articles of faith, but it is more helpful to attend to the Trinitarian formula. Belief is expressed in God the Father, and Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Our ultimate Faith and trust is in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The remaining material describes the life and activity of God in particularity between the three persons. The Father is associated with creation, the Son with incarnation and salvation, the Spirit with the formation of the church, forgiveness, and redemption. These particularities between the persons are meant only to show distinctive distinction in relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and not to distinguish each as individual actors. All that God does, God does as one God. The works of God are undivided. So I thought that was a a helpful uh, way to uh, express uh, things we hold in tension. We'll we'll read in the Apostles' Creed and, of course, in different verses of Scripture about um, God the Father being creator, but as we read in Colossians uh, chapter 1, the Son is also involved in creation, and then later the Spirit is involved in creations in other uh, scripture texts. So it, it's a one God, even as we talk about God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In my sermon, I actually quoted what are that kind of preview section on the, the Apostles' Creed out of the our denominational's confessional standards. And I said that, um, quoting that section there it says the christian faith is founded upon historical truths faithfully faithfully described and rightly interpreted by eyewitnesses thus from the earliest days the church has held to the importance of maintaining continuity with the witness and teaching of the apostles this creed represents the most fundamental expression of the christian faith teaching there is no doubt that the Apostles' Creed is a proper summary of the apostolic dis- deposit of faith, and it remains one of the most basic and complete expressions of Christianity recognized in almost every church that calls itself Christian. 
Right. So I thought that was good. I talked a little bit about how we sometimes come to the creeds with suspicion, whereas when we come to the New Testament or even even the Old Testament, we, we say it's old, it's good. But when right. we come to creeds, we kind of are saying, well, what do I need this old creed for? Exactly. And uh, C.S. Lewis famously in his book, Mere Christianity, talked about theology as a map. Our experience uh, is more like a walk along the beach, which is, you know, a very satisfying uh, in terms of you know, taking the beauty of the ocean. But if you want to get from point A to point B, you need a map. And theology is the map or, you know, the creeds are maps that are derived from um, experiences of those who have gone before us and from scripture uh, to help guide us as we try to follow Christ. Right. Yeah, I think they can be a, a good guide for us. Um, as we uh, preach and teach, we can kind of look to them as uh, a guide, not that they have a, how do, how do I want to say it? They're not authoritative like uh, Scripture. Scripture is, is yeah. the authoritative Word of God. Right, right. Uh, scriptures are, are uh, the creeds are a guide for us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. faithful guide. Okay, well, let's get into the text a little bit. Uh, right. Does that sound all right, Kirk? Yes, and I did something different. Pastor Steve, I think, did 1 through 6. Right. And I did 24 through 35. So you want to read Pastor Steve's text, and then I'll read my text. I think that's great. So this is from the New Revised Standard Version of Psalm 104, and I'll read the first six verses to get us started. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beam of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So I suggested to my audience on the South Campus that they would want to maybe pray this Psalm 104, that maybe they would use it when they're out hiking or walking as kind of maybe something you do before uh, you go on that walk, just to kind of inspire you to look around and see the beauty of God's creation. It's a great use of the psalm, which is all about uh, God uh, as creator and sustainer of nature. Um, just marvelous. Yeah. So I did uh, 24 through 35. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things, innumerable are there, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you Take away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. 
When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. I love the way the psalmist is observant about nature and has some understanding. It's, it reminds me of Jane Goodall uh, looking at the primates and making observations, just long gazing and trying to understand what she sees. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And then from that observation, rendering praise to God. It's really wonderful. So Kirk, uh, should we get into a little bit of archeology? span I always love our archeology. span So uh, when you study ancient Egypt, uh, some of the capitals of ancient Egypt have been Memphis uh, in the north, uh, Thebes in the south. But in between very, very short period of time, there was another ancient capital of e uh, Egypt, which we call today uh, Amarna. And Amarna, when you visit that, if you're you know, doing the tourist visit to Egypt and seeing all the ancient sites, Amarna is a very different site because it was just a, for a very brief time the capital of ancient Egypt during the reign of Amenhotep IV, who changed his name and changed his religion midway through his time as Pharaoh. Uh, he renamed himself Akhenaten, which means uh, effective for Aten. Aten is the Egyptian sun god. And he began worshiping, instead of uh, the typical range of gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt, he worshiped just one god, Aten, and tried to get everybody else to follow him in worshiping uh, or, or paying tribute to just one god. Uh, a very unusual time, the first uh, real country that is embracing monotheism uh, as their native religion. Uh, it didn't last after he, he died. Um, the capital city that he was building up, Amarna, was soon abandoned. And so when you go to the museum at, in Amarna today, it is just uh, architectural bits and fragments uh, that are left because all deteriorated or uh, they use that as building material for other things in other places. But one of the things that has survived this is a hymn to Aten, a hymn to the sun god. And there's remarkable similarities between the hymn to Aten, the sun god, during the reign of Akhenaten, and Psalm 104. So the hymn to Akhenaten, uh, the reign of Akhenaten, is in the um, 14th century BC. And uh, the exodus of Egypt happens either uh, in the 16th century BC or the 13th century BC, depending on which you have an early date for the exodus or late date for the exodus. So that's kind of the background. So Kirk, why don't I read certain phrases from the hymn of Akhenaten, and you read verses that are parallel to that in Psalm 104. We'll just do a couple examples to give it, uh, our listeners an idea of what's going on here. That sounds like a good plan. So you'll begin, and then I'll read a corresponding verse from Psalm 104. So here's the first example. 
from the hymn of Aten. You are fine, great, radiant, lofty over and above every land. And then verse 1 from 104 is, O Lord my God, you are very great. Here's a second example. How numerous are your, wor your works, though hidden from sight. Unique God, there is none beside you. You mold the earth to your wish, you and you alone. And then verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's another example. They, they have different animals that are named in the hymn of Aten that are also named in Psalm 104. So here's one example of that. Every lion goes out from its den. And then verse 21, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And then this uh, short contrast from the hymn of Aten. When you have shown, they live. When you rest, they die. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. So those are just four of many, many examples you have as you go through this Psalm 104 and the Hymn of Aten. So the question remains, so, so what's the connection? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What, what do we make of that? Well, Those you, parallels. Yeah, you have different people that have come up with different theories. The Hymn of Aten wasn't rediscovered till the late 1800s. Uh, so you know, we've had, uh, you know, not quite a century and a half to try to connect the dots there. Mm -hmm. So some people say, well, uh, this is an example where the psalmist, the biblical psalmist, knows this uh, hymn to Aten and has uh, transformed that. Uh, it gives his own version of it, but now not to Aten as the one and only God, but to uh, the Lord God Almighty. Right. Of the Bible is the one and only God. Or maybe a polemic against this Aten, uh, and this is the one true God that you ought to really see this praise right. directed to. Right. Uh, another thought is, well, maybe they're both speaking out of uh, understanding uh, from ancient Egyptian culture about looking at nature and then praising God. Um, so, you know, a couple different ways that that's been approached, but it, it's an interesting question, and uh, many people find it illuminating to think uh, these are real people that uh, wrote the Bible God is working through. Uh, it's a human book as well as a God's inspired word for us. So. Well, those, those Egyptians were so close. So close. Right. And yet so far. I remember the... Uh, it's like a baseball game, watching the Diamondbacks. They get so close, and then they are so far. <laughs> Well, then, no, they get so close, and then the season starts. That's right, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I remember studying this uh, Aten in seminary. I can't remember which class it was. I did have a class on, uh, it was called Ancient Near, Ancient Near East History, I think is what it yes. might have, mm -hmm. it may have come from that. It was, uh, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was supposed to be a sort of a prep class for the Old Testament. But it was, uh, it was my, I think it was my first seminary class. It was very challenging. <laughs> wow. All that ancient history. Yes. Well, uh, eco-central tenets. Um, so we have the eco-confessional standards, but the essential tenets, that's that document that we ask um, all pastors and elders and deacons in the eco 
to um, uh, subscribe to, to say, yes, we, we, we will abide by the essential tenets. Mm -hmm. And the essential tenets talk about what we believe about the Trinity. Uh, that's very important as we begin to think about God, uh, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and how God the Father relates to the other persons of the Trinity. So in that section on the Trinity, our essential tenets say, the triune nature of God is the first great mystery of the Christian faith. And of course, a mystery, Kirk, is something that we can't fully explain, but we accept, right? Mm -hmm. So the Trinity is the first great mystery of the Christian faith. With Christians everywhere, we worship the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is both one essence and three persons. God is infinite, eternal, immutable, impassable, and ineffable. He cannot be divided against himself, nor is he becoming more than he has been, since there is no potential or becoming in him. He is the source of all goodness, all truth, and all beauty, of all love and all life, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The three persons are consubstantial with one another, being both co-eternal and co-equal, such that there are not three gods, nor are there three parts of God, but rather three persons within the one Godhead. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. The Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. All three persons are worthy of worship and praise. So a compact statement uh, echoing some of uh, the earlier creeds and confessions of the church, but very much a 21st century statement. Uh, we, we're, we are not polytheists when we worship the Trinity. I thought that the, uh, the sermon on Sunday, I, I did mention, you know, Trinity. It's hard not to. Um, when you're talking about God the Father, God the, you know, God the Father Almighty, how do you not mention the Son? How do you not mention the Holy Spirit? It's, it, it's, it's right. Yeah, it's very challenging. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is good because this is, we, we can't, really separate these things. Mm -hmm. uh, we, they're really, they're so consubstantial. That's a big word. Yes, it? we have lots of big words in this uh, mm -hmm. episode of our podcast. Well, also on our eco-confessional standards, of course, we have the Apostles' Creed. We have the Nicene Creed. We also have the Heidelberg Catechism. And question 27 talks about the providence of God. We've been mentioning providence. Maybe people don't know what that means. So here's uh, probably a good answer to that. It says, what is the providence of God? Question, uh, the answer is, God's providence is the almighty and the ever-present power of God by which he upholds heaven and earth together with all creatures by his own hand. He rules in such a way that leaves and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So that is sort of like how we began with that Colossians text that you read. Exactly. Holding it all together. And then the next question in the Heidelberg Catechism is about the connection between God's providence and God's creation. So the question 28 is, what good comes from acknowledging God's creation and providence? And the answer, we learn that we are to be patient in adversity, grateful in the midst of blessing, 
and to trust our faithful God and Father for the future. We are assured that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot even move. Uh, what a great uh, testimony, to, testimony to trusting in God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, um, I tried to s- talk about that and how important that is to understand that God the Father Almighty is, he's pro- his providential care is involved in creation. He is almighty in his love and in his grace for us so that even when we face adversity, and, and trouble and difficulty, this is this kind of trust helps us, I think, weather some of these, you know, times when we're in, when we're having some difficulty. Uh, God takes care of uh, us in ways that we can see and in ways that we can't see, mm-hmm. uh, which is a reflection of not the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed, where, where it talks about we believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of... Uh, all things visible and invisible. Right, right, right. Things things that we can comprehend, things that are beyond our comprehension. Right, right, yeah. definitely. Well, and also in our confessional standards, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith and Chapter 4 of Creation. It says, uh, It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, in the beginning to create or make nothing, the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. So again, that emphasis on all persons of the Trinity being involved in creation. And then uh, in chapter 5 of the Westminster Convention, uh, Confession, it talks about providence. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of the second causes, whether necessary, freely, or contingently. In other words, you know, God's behind everything, but, you know, if I pick up an apple, well, I'm picking up the apple, in a sense. And that, as so often is the case in the Westminster Confession, very precise theological language mm-hmm. uh, with very big words that sometimes go over our heads today. So, Right. You, you did really well to read all those big words. Well, thank you. Thank very, you. Every once in a while. Very good. So each week we've been looking at the, that overarching story that the apostles are the creators of this creed and it's... Uh, and its origin, the the stories that, what did we call them? Uh, uh, the, the legend. The, the legend. The myth. The yeah. myth. Uh, which has a good uh, lesson behind it, which is that uh, it's true to the teaching of the apostles. Uh, but it gives us a good excuse to say, well, who were the 12 apostles? What do we know about them? Mm-hmm. Last week we looked at the apostle Peter, mm-hmm. 
who is uh, usually connected with the first article by tradition, uh, the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the last article of the Apostles' Creed, which is, and the life everlasting, amen. That's usually associated with the very last of the 12 apostles, the apostle that was appointed to replace Judas, who's a man uh, called Matthias. And we read about him in the first chapter of Acts, mm -hmm. where uh, it, it's in that period between Christ's ascension and the day of Pentecost, and they're waiting in Jerusalem, they're praying. And Peter says that, you know, we, sh we should appoint somebody to take Judas' place. And he quotes from the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And then another text, may another take his place of leadership. And so they decide, well, we've got to choose somebody. What are we going to do? Well, we've got two people, two good candidates who were uh, both, you know, following Christ from the very beginning, uh, good people, and they are... Uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And so they cast lots. Uh, we don't do that in the Presbyterian Church anymore. You know, we, we vote or elect people. We don't cast lots very often. But uh, that's what they did back then, and they chose Matthias. And uh, the book of Acts says, and so he is added to the 11 apostles. And everything else we hear about Matthias is uh, from traditions, you know, kind of legends that were several centuries later. Mm -hmm. There was another uh, follower of Christ called Matthias who became the bishop of Jerusalem in the second century. And sometimes the tradition of the one Matthias from the first century and the Matthias from the second century are, are uh, conflated. Mm -hmm. And so it's you know, kind of difficult to, to discern those. So one of the traditions has Matthias being martyred in Jerusalem. Uh, another of the uh, traditions say that he went down to Ethiopia and was martyred there. But we don't know very much about him. But very interesting that they said, let's, 12 is a good number. We've got 11 now. Let's, let's make it 12. And so that's how we got Matthias. That's excellent. Well, I think uh, that's about as much as I've ever learned about Matthias. So thank you, Bruce. That's excellent. Well, we've had as a regular feature in our podcast a quote from C.S. Lewis. Do you have one for us today? I do, and this is interesting because C.S. Lewis wrote a commentary on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. It's one of the best-selling uh, Old Testament commentaries of all time. I think the second best-selling commentary on the Old Testament ever. Wow. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people have read this. And he talks about that connection between the hymn of Aten and Psalm 104. Mm. And so he wonders, uh, you know, what's going on there? So... Lewis talks about, and this is in his chapter seven of that book, which is all on nature. He talks about that uh, Akhenaten's religion died with him. Nothing apparently came of it. And then Lewis begins to speculate. He says, unless, of course, as is just possible, Judaism itself partly came out of it. It is conceivable that ideas derived from Akhenaten's system formed part of that Egyptian wisdom in which Moses was bred. There is nothing to disquiet us in such a possibility. Whatever was true in Akhenaten's creed came to him in some mode or other, as well as all truth comes from all men, from God. There is no reason why traditions descending from Akhenaten should not have been among the instruments which God used in making himself known to Moses. But we have no evidence that this is, a, uh, is what actually happened. Nor do we know how to fit Akhenatism 
would have really been to serve as an instrument for this purpose. Its inside, its spirituality, the quality of life from which it sprang and which it encouraged escapes us. The man himself still has the power after 34 centuries to invoke the most violent and contradictory reactions. To one modern scholar, he is the first individual whom history records. To another, he is a crank, a fattest, half insane, possibly uh, Cretaceous. We may well hope that he was accepted and blessed by God, but that his religion, at any rate, on a historical level, was not so blessed and so accepted is pretty clear. Perhaps a seed that was good seed, but fell on stony ground. Or perhaps it was not, after all, exactly the right sort of seed. To us moderns, no doubt, such a simple, enlightened, reasonable monotheism looks very much more like the good seed that those earliest documents of Judaism, in which Yahweh seems very more, a little more than a tribal deity. We might be wrong. So interesting speculation on, again, the connection between the Himabotan and Psalm 104. That's good. That's interesting. Yeah. Something to ponder. Yeah. And Kirk, uh, also on our podcast, we usually have something from our Reform heritage. Do you have a quote to bring to our, our enlightenment? Yes, I do. I am, I'm going to provide us two quotes, one that I used in my sermon. Uh, the first is from R.C. Sproul, and it's from his book, called Renewing Your Mind, Basic Christian Beliefs You Need to Know. He says, God is not the world. He stands apart from it in authority, in power, in dignity, and in being. However transcendent God may be, he is passionately involved with his creation. His activity extends far beyond the limits of creative origins. So he's saying God is the creator, but he's not the world. He's not in a bush. He's not in a rock, you know. Which is a contrast to the concept of God that was present uh, during the life of the biblical writers. If you look at the Egyptian hymn of creation or the Babylonian hymn of creation, it was that the gods created the world and then they inhabited what they created. God creates animals that inhabits the animals. Uh, God or goddess creates a rock and inhabits the rock. But that's not the Christian belief. That's not the belief of Scripture. God is apart from creation. Right. And the other one that I used in my sermon was J.I. Packer. He says this, When we say the first clause of the creed, we will put all this together and confess Creator as both the Father of our Savior and our own Father through Christ a father who now loves us no less than he loves his only begotten son. That is a marvelous confession to be able to make. And I talked about the idea of how we become part of this family, right? And that's right. through adoption. And I, I just wanted to stress that, you know, we are heirs. And we talked about that in our, our podcast, one of the one of the fatherhood texts that we talked about last week right. said that we were heirs. And um, it just struck me to think the Father Almighty, creator of everything, is also my father. He is, and, and I have that same, I have all those benefits that Christ received um, as, as heir. And that means 
resurrection. And that means eternal life with God forever. Amen. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, uh, I've enjoyed J.I. Packer's book on, uh, it's kind of a exposition on, well, it's, I think it's called Christian Beliefs, but it's uh, an exposition really on the Apostles' Creed. And then also R.C.'s book uh, is similar, uh, kind of a summary of Christian beliefs, but using the Apostles' Creed as kind of a framework. So we may return to those two books you may, you in may future hear, podcasts. You may hear more from those guys. Well, we'll yeah. look forward to that. Yeah, they've been good guides. Well, Bruce, is there anything else that you'd like to add today? Uh, just uh, that we are turning uh, in our next podcast to focusing on God the Son mm. or uh, God the Redeemer. Yes. As uh, Steve hinted at the close of his sermon. Yes, that's what he said. And he is the God that redeems, but that's for next week. He said. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, would you pray for us? Sure, let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, great God Almighty, thank you so much for adopting us as your own children. We thank you that um, we are heirs to the promise, heirs to the promise of life and hope. Lord, help us to observe the world around us this week and to remember that you made all this and you, the God who made all this, loves us deeply. All praise to you through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk.